0: Get your Bibles. Open with me to Paul's Gospel to the Romans, Romans chapter three. I'm going to continue our study through, um, through Romans. We're only going to be focusing on the first two verses of this, but I'd like to read, if we can, just the first eight, just to get make sure that we've got it in um, in context. Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, start from verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. As I said, we're going to focus only on the first two verses. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, cheaply, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. When um, when I was in my 20s, I um, I really wanted to get an advantage. I would read so many different books to try and... Try and get ahead in life, you know. I had, uh, I was worshiping the god mammon at the time, so I wanted everything to do with money, anything to do with success, anything to, that could spur me on forward, and and how much I wanted to find something, a, a book, something that would that would give me the keys to life, you know, that would just unlock this incredible mystery that we call life, and. So I, I, I bought a book that was promoted at the time, it was by a man called Ogmandino, it was called The Greatest Salesman in the World. It's only about that big and at that particular time that's about as much as I could stomach, it was about that much reading. So I read that book and that was done and dusted, then I, then I bought one by Napoleon Hill called Think and Grow Rich and read that one. And then How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, and there's there's heads being nodded around me, so I know that you guys know the book. The Road Less Travelled by Scott M. Peck, The Richest Man in Babylon, The Power of Positive Thinking, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, I still really couldn't find the answers in these, so I started researching the great companies of the world. I looked at a, a massive book called The Prize. It was all about oil, and I was reading about the Standard Oil Company and John D. Rockefeller and everything like that, that stemmed from that and the history of the world that actually surrounds that. I read the history of Coca-Cola. Do you know the picture that we got of Santa Claus today, started by Coca-Cola? Did you know that? It began with Coca-Cola. It was a marketing gimmick by Coca-Cola in the early 1900s. Amazing, isn't it? We thought this big, fat, chubby, round man was something through history. No, it used to be a little green leprechaun. Very, very skinny St. Nicholas. That was the old one. But this was a complete marketing gimmick by Coca-Cola. Mmm, Puts another bent on Christmas for the majority of people, doesn't it? So I read that book, and that was really interesting. That didn't stop there. I then started looking at the, at the industrialists. I started looking at people like Lee Iacocca, who was the, the managing director of Ford Motor Company and his success, and, um, you know, the, 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 the rise of Kerry Packer and the rise and fall of Alan Bond and then Robert Maxwell's book and then the fall of Rupert Murdoch. The fall of Rupert Murdoch. You can buy that book really cheap today. At the time, their shares were only going at $10, I think, a share, and now it's a small fortune. But even what I was looking for was an advantage. I was looking for something that would actually unlock what it was that I was after. And here we've got this text that Paul asks, he says, "'What advantage then hath the Jew?' "'Or what profit is there of circumcision?' See, in the first chapter of the Gospel to the Romans, we already understand where Paul's going. He's already putting a blanket covering on all the Gentiles, haven't we? We can see that in there because he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. He puts the Gentiles in a pretty desperate situation, in a position where all of a sudden they have to look at something outside of themselves to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then in the second chapter, he says, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So the natural question then comes, what advantage then has the Jew? You see, within that very question, there's an expectation that they have an advantage. Why would we think that the Jews would have an advantage? But in the question itself, Well, what advantage then has has the Jew? Now, Paul's speaking here. He's not speaking to Jewish people. He's speaking to the Gentiles in the church at Rome. There might be some Jewish people there, but that wasn't his focus. He was addressing a question that even the Gentiles understood must be posed. What advantage then hath the Jew? Now, we all enjoy an advantage, like like I was saying. I mean, it's not unusual. You can... Um, sports people look for an advantage in order to get above their, their, their competitors. Teams look for an advantage and one of their ways of looking for an advantage is to pay the most amount of money to woo a really good player onto their side so they would have a, an advantage. It's, it's not unusual, it's not unusual. I mean, we go to school, when we go to school as kids, we go to school trying to get an advantage, don't we? We're looking at an advantage to be able to get out there in the real world, to, to, to lead a life that's going to be successful. And the more we work, the better the advantage. Businesses look for an advantage. They look for the niche market for their businesses, where they can actually place their product so it can be it can be uh, it can be seen by the greatest number of people, and perhaps purchased. They look for an advantage. It's 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 just it's normal, you know. We we see we see you know countries warring against one another, and we see that the. They're also looking for an advantage. What, what sort of weaponry that they can actually use to make sure that they can bring their enemy to its knees? There's positive advantages and there's negative advantages too, though, isn't there? Uh, we can look at trying to get a negative advantage. Um, cheating. Cheating is a negative advantage. I'm starting to get sick of watching the footy these days with all these people falling over as if this is soccer. You know, it's just, I'm, I'm really getting tired of it. and finding it hard to watch now. Like I did soccer, you know? So, but you know, that's cheating. What are they trying to do? They're trying to gain an advantage by lying, by deception, through cheating. There's no other word for it. It's it's deception. It's not clever, it's deception. Okay, it's not playing fair. Ever cheated an exam? I remember I, remember I had a ruler for maths and I'd write the formulas on the back of the ruler. I know you've never done that, yeah? Nah. <laughs> write the formulas on the back of the ruler and I'll have it there, occasionally just flip that up, you know? I don't know why the teacher not got wise to that, you know, my dad actually gave me a, a watch with a calculator on it. I was, mate, everyone loved that at school, you know, it's like, oh, i me you have a look, I you know, can cheat the exam. Anyway, I've done that, ever lied to your husband, to your wife? Trying to get an advantage in one form or another. You know, when, when it comes to lying, lying's a really interesting one because I can't think of a lie that doesn't actually give an advantage. Look at a balloon floating right in the middle of our. That's wonderful. Pay no attention to the balloon. Pay no attention to the balloon. All right. There is no balloon. Actually, it's coming down to you, Alan. <laughs> All right. Cheated on your taxes. Yeah, I'm sure none of us have claimed something that we don't have a receipt for. We claim the legal amount, the right amount that we can actually claim. We've done that. Politicians lie. Why do they lie? To get an advantage. Some people steal, some even murder. It's amazing, isn't it? We're all looking for an advantage. It's something that we seem to naturally desire. So Paul asks the question, what advantage then hath the Jew? or what profit is there, of circumcision? Indeed, if he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, what advantage does the Jew have? That's an important question. The text we are looking at not only credits the Jew with some form of advantage that's superior to others, but is the very form of question that it expects that there must be an advantage. I'm sure I've got that point across. This next point, the particular commitment of God. So the question, what advantage then hath the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? His answer is simply, much every way. Because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The oracles of God. God has committed to Israel his oracles, his words, his sayings. This is the advantage, because unto them were committed the oracles of God. The fundamental chief advantage to the Jew was that he had committed to them God's own words. Israel had been given the secrets to life. Could you imagine, imagine, imagine knowing ahead of time that if you did something, this was going to be the result. Could you imagine doing that? Imagine knowing that, that the result of what you were going to do, I mean, we sit there thinking about the things that we want to do in life. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we could already know ahead of time what the end result is, that is going to be? I knew if I had known, if I had known that it was going to take me 17 years in business before I made my first real dollar, I wouldn't have started. I've got to admit, I would not have started. All right? 17 years were on the bread line. I wish I had known earlier. I wish I had known earlier. But my problem wasn't what I was doing, my problem was my heart in doing it. And that's exactly what Israel had. They had an awareness of their heart. They had an awareness within the Word of God that was given to them that they could have an advantage above everybody else. And it wasn't just given to them for their own sakes. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. How I wish I'd loved, I could get this across that you could really, really chew over. Because to think that we've got one particular chapter in the Bible that is effectively a key, a key that if you understood this, everything else would be made clear. But you would have to believe it. Moses is preaching in the wilderness. Deuteronomy is a sermon, or probably two sermons in the wilderness that he's preaching. This one message here In Deuteronomy chapter 30, and we're going to read the chapter, gives you such depth on the importance of what it is that he's going to be preaching. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. And it come to pass when all these, this is Moses speaking still. And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee. And that, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations Whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee And shall return unto the Lord thy God And shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day Thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul That then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity And have compassion upon thee And will return and gather thee from all the nations Whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee if any of thine be driven, in unto the utmost, unto the outmost parts of heaven, from if any of thine be driven, sorry, out unto the utmost parts of heaven. From thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will He fetch thee. The Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. And He will do thee good and multiply thee above all above all thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy, and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies. Move down to verse 11. For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up to us? to heaven, and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea, that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us, to bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. See, I have set before thee this day life and good, death and evil." In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, and his statutes, and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. But if thine heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land whether thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Stop there. The God of the universe... The one who created you and I, the created the nation of Israel, a nation that he chose. There wasn't anything good within them that they found God. It was God that chose them. And now he is giving them a key to life, a key that he can come to a knowledge of how to live a life and receive all the blessing of the creator of life. Doesn't it stand to reason that the one that actually created this entire universe actually framed this universe to work according to a certain law? We know that when we look at the laws of physics that that governs the universe, they're governed according to a certain law. Equally, our own actions and behaviours and the things that we desire and that which we chase after also has a direct consequence. One that is either good or one that is bad. There is consequences to how we live our lives. The Jews were given the advantage. What an advantage. What an advantage. What an incredible advantage. Imagine being able to know those things ahead of time. You'd be able to look at the direction that the rest of the world is going and you can already see ahead of time where their end is going to be. You know that that's wisdom. And that wisdom only comes from the word of God. And that's what they've been given. God had committed his oracles to Israel. That's what he's given to them. second point is the advantage sought. You understand that even, even those people that are in the world, do you know they seek for that advantage? They, 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 they look for things. They, they look for things that's going to tell them their future. i to read you this little excerpt from Donald Gray Barnhouse. Because one of the problems that, we, that I had when I, was, when I was researching this and going over it, the, some of the teachers were really getting uncomfortable with the word oracle. You know the word oracle? It has certain renderings to it, which, you know, to have it in the scriptures, and it's referring to God's oracle. God is an oracle. Well, you know our, 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 um, our cultural encyclopedia that we have on the internet called Wikipedia. Oh, they have this to say. In classical antiquity, an oracle was a person or agency considered to to interface wise counsel or prophetic predictions or precognition of the future, impaired by the gods, as it is in the form of divination. But it wasn't just those things either. You know, it was also related to people looking for a certain benefit or luck or anything like that. Donald Ray Barnhouse says this, regarding worldly oracles, he says men have always wanted to know about their future and how to make choices. Ancient authors have recorded that some people consulted the movements of fish in a tank and the movements of snakes in a pit. Pausian, Pausinius, tells us how people left a coin by a certain altar of Hermes, stopped their ears and walked through a crowd until suddenly they unstopped their ears and took guidance from the first words uttered by a chance passerby. You think that's funny. There's more. You've got to look at the rest of this. In one temple, there was a priest who interpreted the whispers of the branches of an oak tree moving in the wind. The commonest form of divination had to do with birds. This will interest you. This will interest you. In Rome it was an organized system of state ceremony. Public officials were called augurs. Listened to the talk of birds. The word augur comes from the Latin words for bird and talk. When the augur said all said that all was well, the official ceremonies proceeded. We talk of inaugurating a president without realising that the Latin word for bird talk is in the middle of the word. Others watched the flight of birds. If they went in one direction, a certain result was deduced, while if they flew in another direction, another meaning was given to their movements. People watched the birds very carefully, and the bird watchers have given another word in our language. For our words, auspices... And auspicious are made up of two Latin words, bird and watch. Interesting, isn't it? When we say that a meeting will be held under, auspicious, under the auspices of some society, we go back to the time of life and race when men looked at birds to see if they could find out from the whim of their flight some pattern that would prophesy a good day. He goes on here and he says, the priests of Rome, this is now modern times now, he says, the priests of Rome opened the bodies of birds to see how the entrails were marked and gave clearance for projects or halted their progress, depending on what they had seen in the marking there. And if we are prone to laugh at them for such doings, let us not forget that in our country today, there are those who decide their movements by the cut of cards, the toss of a coin, the fall of the dice, the reading of tea leaves, the lines on the palm of a hand, The horoscope read by some astrologer. The interpretation of dreams or some other fantasies of the same kind. Foolish people, some of whom live in our block, he says, lose hundreds of dollars a year to the numbers racketeers by fantastic methods of picking out numbers. Tatslotto? You know what Tatslotto is? Tatslotto is a tax on those that can't do math. That's all it is. To tax on those who can't do math. And he says, This is a pitiful lesson which shows the, deep, the depth of folly to which men are plunged when they abandon the truth of God. For it is only when men have abandoned the truth of God that they will stoop to such vagaries as those we have described in ancient or modern times, to which men give themselves in their attempt to outwit God and to know something of the immediate future. The Christian walks by faith, and not by sight. A Christian walks by faith and not by sight. So you see, that's, that's how the world is looking for an advantage. That's how the world looks for an advantage. They look for an advantage through some stuff that would blow you away. I mean, we only tip the, the, the top of the iceberg with that. It's the background. The background of the culture at that particular time. There's something I want you to have a look at now, historically. Why the Gentiles would presume and understand and believe that there must be an advantage to the Jew, otherwise they wouldn't be asking the question. Now, Paul's asking the question. Recognise that? What advantage then hath the Jew? But he's got this incredible way of being asking a question he already knows is in the minds of the people that he's actually writing to. Depending on which hand you have... Use either your index finger or your thumb. I want you to mark the beginning of Isaiah, please. In your Bibles, grab the very, very first page of Isaiah. The very first page of Isaiah. A little bit of history. In 587, 586 BC, the Israel was taken into captivity. Judah was taken into captivity into Babylon. And they were there for a period of 70 years in captivity before the decree was given to go back and to restore and to build Jerusalem. They were there for a period of 70 years, Judah was. With your other finger that you have, I want you to put that in the book of Malachi, the the last book of the Old Testament. Put it at the end of Malachi. We, we, We Italians believe that he was the first Italian prophet and think for sure that it should be pronounced Malachi but we'll stick with Malachi. So grab that one there and hold those two sections between your fingers, please. Isaiah through to Malachi. And what I want you to do is have a little bit of a look at how large that is. Now, that's not including um, the last part of the book of Chronicles. It's not including Ezra, Esther or Nehemiah. Okay? If you've got that between your fingers... The size of that, God is actually dealing with a particular time frame in the state of Israel. A particular time frame he's dealing with is all contained between, those, between those, your fingers there right now. Okay, Some was written a couple of hundred years earlier, some a bit later, but it was all to do with predominantly... That particular time in Israel's history, it was a huge time of Israel's history. And it makes up roughly about the same amount of our New Testament. Okay? So when you put those together, it's about the same or a little bit larger than our entire New Testament. God is here dealing historically with the nation of Israel. Okay? Israel is where? They're in Babylon. They're in the world empire at the time. The known world empire at the time. The empire here stretched from modern day Istanbul down through all of Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Pakistan, to the border of India, and then across to Lebanon, Israel and Egypt. It was a massive empire. And here we have a couple of individuals who rose to prominence in that empire. They became second in charge of the empire. You know at least one of them, Daniel. Does anybody know the other one? Second in charge of the empire, second behind the king. Came a little bit later on, the captivity, they'd already been told that they can go back home at this point. You've read the book of Esther, you'll see that Mordecai was second to the king. Now, what's really interesting about this is that these kings were influenced dramatically by the nation that they actually took into captivity. And I'll bet they would never have known that that was going to be the case. I'm going to read some scriptures. I'd like you to bear with me for a minute as I go through these, that you can see the state of the Gentile kings and their mindset with respect to the God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar is the first one. And in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, the king answered unto Daniel and said, "'Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing that thou couldest reveal this secret.'" Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over over the province of Babylon and chief of the governors of all the wise men of Babylon. It doesn't stop there with Nebuchadnezzar. He threw these men, men, the friends of Daniel, into a fiery furnace. And he looked and beheld inside there that they were unscathed completely. And Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any God except their own God. Therefore, listen to what he says. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This isn't a historical event, and I'm going to prove that in a minute, that you'll be able to understand where all this has come from. This is what the nations around Israel are actually seeing happening. These people are a captive within their nation. It doesn't stop there. Nebuchadnezzar, do you know he wrote a chapter in Scripture? Daniel chapter 4. And this is what he starts off with saying. Only three verses. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, unto all people, from verse one, nations and languages, he's writing a letter to his nation, to every dominion under his realm. That dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the High God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. If you know the story, you'll understand what comes after this. He tells his own testimony of how God drove him away from man and put him into the fields with the beasts. That the dew of heaven was actually falling onto onto his back and that he was actually eating with the oxen. And then the Lord, after seven years, restored his mind and he wrote this testimony, chapter 4 of Daniel. He says in the end of, of, um, of chapter 4, he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride is able to abase. He is able to abase. There's another one, another king, a king that came straight after Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, didn't come after Nebuchadnezzar, came after his son, Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar wasn't believing in God, didn't, didn't believe the things or didn't trust in the things that actually happened to his own father. And Cyrus the Great actually came into Babylon and defeated this incredible city without a battle. Without a battle. This is what Cyrus says of the God of Israel. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, "Thus saith Cyrus, Cyrus, yeah, it's a bit tongue twister. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia: all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me." And he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is there among you of all his people. The Lord, his God, be with him and let him go, go up in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. How does Cyrus know God? What did Cyrus discover when he actually came into that city of Babylon that completely blew him away? Hey, you ever had something written about you before you were born? Cyrus did. Cyrus did. 200 years before his birth, we have the book of Isaiah. Thus saith, saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, Isaiah chapter 44, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45, the first few verses are written to be given to Cyrus Written to be given to Cyrus thus saith the lord to his anointed to cyrus whose right hand i have beholden i have holden to subdue nations before him and i will loose the loins of kings to so open before him the two-leaved gates and the gates shall not be shut i will go before thee and make the crooked places straight I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which called thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me." I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Could you imagine? Could you imagine being a ruler of the world at that time, conquering a nation, and all of a sudden being presented with the scroll of Isaiah? A scroll that actually gives detail of your accomplishments and what you've done. Could that be why Cyrus has come to believe? Who could know? Who could know ahead of time? To that detail. Yeah, he wasn't the only one. We also have um, Darius, who speaks of God. Darius came after Cyrus. Darius made a decree. Now, at this particular time, the people had already left Babylon. Not all, there were many people still there, and they stayed there for a fair while. But a number of people actually started making their way, their journey back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and the street and the city thereof. Okay, but there was some angst against them. There was there was attack happening on all sides. You could see that in the book of Nehemiah. People were coming against them. So they actually wrote to Darius and they asked him, you know, search, search the chronicles of the people of Persia, search their chronicles and find out whether this is just, because this is a wicked and adulterous nation. This is a nation that comes against our kings, and they'll take your taxes. But what he discovered was Cyrus's decree. He discovered Cyrus's decree. And this is what he said. This is amazing. He says, Now therefore, Tatni, governor beyond the river, Shethar Boznai, and your companions, the Afrasites, which are beyond the river, be ye far from thence. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. Moreover, I make a decree. What you shall do to the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God, that the king's goods, even the tribute beyond the river forthwith expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered. He's the giving of his own, of his own wealth, of his own taxes. He's given of his own money to help build and restore Jerusalem. And down at verse 11 he says, Also I have made a decree that whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house, and being set up, let him be hanged thereon, and let his house be made a dunghill for this. And the God that hath caused his name to dwell there destroy all kings and all people that shall put to their hand to alter and to destroy this house of God, which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made a decree. Let it be done with speed. This is incredible. Now we have one, two, we have three kings, three rulers of the known world at that time, all of them acknowledging God of heaven, the God of Israel, this, this, this tiny country which they've actually taken into their own captivity. Were they influenced? Were they influenced by the godly men that actually stood up? Doesn't that say something about your ability, yours and mine? Doesn't it say something about us? Don't we we have an ability to change things? If we would live according to the word of God, if we would take the advantage that Israel had, if we could take that advantage and we could learn to live according to his word and according to his will, there's changes that could be made. There's changes that could be made. And most importantly, the salvation of those that are around us. Friends, the people that we love. What advantage has the Jew? What's the advantage? That's the word of God. We'd probably rather keep it on the parcel shelf in the back of the car, right? Maybe, maybe leave it on a particular shelf, on the bookshelf, so that way when Sunday comes, you know, you can just pick it up and just bring it, you know. The word of life is there. What fools are we? What, what fools are we? We have the advantage that, that, that Paul speaks about here in Romans. And we, and we what? We leave it on the, on the bookshelf. or we, we can't even find it when we want it. Why? Because we haven't read it for goodness knows how long. And where's the Bible? Where's my Bible, you know? It'd be good if we knew where we left it because that would mean that we regularly pick it up. Ah, we're such fools. And yet, these Gentile kings... They see the advantage. They know the advantage. Last king, Ahasuerus, speaks of God. He's found in the book of Esther. He's the one through whom Mordecai and Esther brought the knowledge of Haman. Haman was the equivalent or probably the forerunner of Adolf Hitler. His desire was to completely wipe out the Jewish nation. And this is what he says in the book of Esther, chapter 10. And the king Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea, And all the acts of his power and of his might, and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereunto the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace unto all his seed." Earlier, it actually tells of the letters of dedication that were sent to the Jews in 127 provinces of the empire. It might amaze you that this story is understood by the Persians. Do you know what happened? You remember what happened? The Jews were signalled to be annihilated. Okay, The king couldn't change his decree. He couldn't alter it. He couldn't say, no, you have to stop it, because everything that the kings wrote in Persia, they stamped, not even the king could undo. The law became the law, became the law, and that's the end of it. Remember, Darius was trying to deliver Daniel from the lion's den, but he wrote the decree being fooled, and he couldn't deliver him. Why? Because he couldn't change the decree. It had to go. Daniel had to go into the lion's den. Couldn't be changed. But Ahazurus gave them permission to defend themselves. So they did. More than 70,000 people perished during that endeavour of the Jews against the Persians who were set and hell-bent to destroy the Jews. Do you know how the Persians remember it? Till today? Till today, the Persians remember it as an unprovoked attack by the state of Israel. Interesting, isn't it? You read their writings, that's how they hold it, that's how they believe it. Second last point. Do you think that would have had an influence outside of Babylon? Do you you think the influence of the Jews who understood and knew the word of God, the advantage that they had, that was understood by the kings that that they were governed by, do you think that they had an influence on the world around them? did you know the five ethical religions that we know today, the five written ethical religious systems that we know today all came about within a hundred years of the Babylonian captivity that's amazing Confucianism 479 BC Confucianism Zoroastrianism, 6th century BC, commonly mid-5th century, that is, about 450 BC. The men credited with it, according to Wiki, was Cyrus the Great and Darius the Mede. They were two of the men credited with that religion, Zoroastrianism. Still around today, still around today, still used today. Philosophy. But you didn't know that philosophy was a religious system. It is. It's an ethical, religious system. Do you know when it started? Pythagoras is credited as the founder of philosophy and he lived from 570 BC to 495 BC. When was the Babylonian captivity? 586. It started, finished 536. Buddhism. Siddhartha Gautama, or known as Buddha, lived from the 6th well, it was understood anywhere between the 6th to the 4th century BC. He didn't live for 200 years. They don't know exactly when he, when he lived, but they know that it was roughly around about that time. Hinduism. Probably the oldest pagan religion that can be traced in similar form to Egypt and ancient Babylon had a massive ascetic, that is an ethical, reformation, noted 500 BC. Guys, you can look this up yourself. I did. That's all I did. Checked it out on, on, on wiki, I have to admit. I checked it out on wiki and I'm pretty sure that the people there aren't Jewish that wrote it or that filled it in or Christians who have got a particular agenda or anything like that or perceived agenda. Don't you think that's curious? See, the Gentile nations understood that Israel had an ad- an advantage. Their only problem was that they didn't want to acknowledge the author of that advantage. So they would basically, I don't know, um, counterfeit it. They would counterfeit what Israel had and come up with their own, similar to what we have today. We have religious systems all over the world and there are thousands and millions of them, people all making things up according to their own ideas and their own will and their own desires. There was no ruler in Israel so each man did that which was right in his own eyes and we've got that happening today unfortunately we've got that happening a lot within Christianity let me close with this I wish I could express to you the importance of God's words the words I've got is inadequate when I was looking for an advantage it wasn't going to be in any of those books that I read it's never going to be found there the keys to life, the key to life is this one. I was wonderfully blessed. went to a prayer meeting a little while ago and I saw Sam Walker's dad there and he had a, he had a Bible that was, was pretty much falling apart. It was a Thompson Chain reference Bible like my one, but it was smaller. I don't know how he can read it. I can barely read this one. And it was falling apart. And after I heard him pray... He just, it's so true that man who has a Bible falling apart is not. He's not falling apart. And that's the wonderful truth that we have with the scriptures, brethren. That's the joy that we can have. That's the hope that we can have. But it means we're going to believe it. We're going to believe that we have the Word of God. I'm, I'm just broken hearted the state of Christianity today. I'm broken hearted that people are attending churches and going to functions, which, are, which they glorified social clubs. I know, I came out of one. You know, they're nothing more than social clubs. Nothing more. They don't bring their Bibles. Oh, they reckon I've got it. I know, already know. I know when he's telling the truth and when he's not telling the truth. Garbage, absolute garbage. And they're deceiving themselves. These people are deceiving themselves. They don't know, they don't have a clue. Why don't they know? Because they don't believe the word of God. If they did believe the word of God, they would hold these men accountable. What about the world around us? How's it going? What do you think about our government? What do you think about other governments? Anything it's curious how a particular idea gets floated around and all of a sudden every Western nation is taking it on board and accepting it as true? How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It happens when you and me don't live by this. But the people around us don't see we have an advantage. You know why? Because you don't believe we have an advantage. That's the very reason why you won't pick it up. I wouldn't be saying it. I can't say it if I didn't know that it was true. You know? Why would I lie to you about something like this? Why would Pastor lie to you about something like this? Why would David lie to you about something like this? You hear this day in, day out. You hear this every time you're here. The only way you're going to grow is in this book. The advantage that the Jew had was the oracles of God, and they had nothing compared to what we have. We have the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, the living Word of God. The Bible says there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. 1 John 5, 7. If you've got a modern translation, you've lost that. That's not there anymore, sorry. But that's what you have. We have the Word of God. In Revelation chapter 19, he says that he had a word written, he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and his name is called the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the personification of the very word of God. He is the living word of God. And if you won't pick up his word, you have no interest in him. Thy word is a lamp as a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. Psalm 119 verse 105. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible comes two chapters after the shortest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 117. And no, the middle of the Bible is not 118. I know you've all got those emails. It's wrong. Okay, it's actually wrong. Psalm 119 is all about the Word of God. If you want to be challenged by this message a little further, read it. 176 verses will take you about 20 minutes to read it. Every single verse is about the Word of God. There's seven different words used apart from the Word of God within each one of those verses. If you want to know what they are, they're found within the first seven verses of Psalm 119. I encourage you to read it. Read it and see the benefit that the author put on the Word of God, that you might grow. And that the people, when they come into this church, they will see Christians that have not got it all together because none of us have, right? But they will see Christians that have struggled with stuff that are now growing. And the secret is the advantage that they have. I had a friend of mine that once said to me, um, I didn't want to go to church because I'm feeling pretty bad about myself because of the things that I've done this week. And you, know, you guys have all sort of got it together. I'm like, mate, are you serious? We've got it together. You know, we are a church filled with broken people that need the Lord and need each other's company, each other's grace, each other's love more than anybody else. You know, I once joked to him, I said, I'm, I'm tempted that, you know, the Lord has me start a church, it'll be called Broken Baptist, you know. Because really, truly, that's what we are. We're all broken people. The only thing that holds us together is the Lord, you know. But the only way that we can encourage our brethren, people that are struggling, The only way we can encourage them is if we're growing. How on earth are you going to benefit those people that are coming into this church unless you yourself have gone through the trials, picked up the word of God, humbled yourself to it and believed it and read it. Read it. Start to finish. When you're done, read it again. Start to finish. When you finish that, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Spend an hour a day in the scriptures. You know, Yeah, you won't understand stuff. You're going to get to stuff like Leviticus and you're going to get the dropsies as you're going through it. Yes, that's going to happen. Okay, but mark me as the water that comes from heaven and wets the earth and creates growth. So will the word of God do that to you and for you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord. We thank you for the hope and the joy and the peace that we can have, Father, in knowing you, dear Lord. We know, dear Lord, that our first form of being able to read and understand the Word of God is that we must be born again. We must be born with the Spirit of God, dear Lord, that authored the Word of God. We have to have that same Spirit within us that actually authored Scripture. And I ask you, dear Lord, that you would impart on those that are here a saving knowledge of who you are and that they would give themselves to you wholeheartedly, that they would sacrifice their life and their ideas and live a life filled with advantage. Lord, I pray that you would be with us. Govern our speech, govern our thoughts, govern our minds and hearts and eyes. Father, watch over us, dear Lord. We know that this is a difficult road that we are to pass on, but we're only passing through this earth. Father, help us grow in the knowledge of you. I praise you for your grace and for your love, for your mercy, for your incredible patience with us. And we ask you, dear Lord, that you will bless our time And bless the rest of our lives, dear Father, as we devour your word. We praise you in Jesus' glorious and most holy and precious name. Amen.